Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pierce. And welcome to SCN2A Insights. By starting this podcast, we hope to provide good quality information about SCN2A to better inform the SCN2A community around the world. For our first episode, who else but to interview Professor Ingrid Sheffer? Ingrid's been associated with genetic epilepsy over many years and has really followed the evolution from first finding a single gene associated with an epilepsy syndrome to now having a really in-depth understanding of a whole range of different genetic epilepsies. In SCN2A, Ingrid's been one of the key people involved in developing the knowledge base of SCN2A from where it first started as recognising the association of that gene with this epilepsy syndrome and now really getting into some of the bioscience and looking at gain of function and loss of function and starting to understand how that might impact on treatments. Laureate Professor Ingrid Sheffer is a paediatric neurologist and a professor at the University of Melbourne, Austin Health and the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne. Good afternoon, Ingrid. Thank you for your time today and for having such a big impact on the field of SCN2A and genetic epilepsies in general. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. You've had a long association with genetic epilepsies and SCN2A. When did you first start that? Well, my association with finding genes for epilepsy actually dates well back but before SCN2A was found as an epilepsy gene. Really, it was started with my PhD when I started working on large families with epilepsy back in about 1991 uh, when I started as a PhD student of Professor Sam Berkovic. And at that stage, we started studying large families. It took me a year to study a large family. And this led to us working with molecular geneticists or uh, gene-finding scientists, really, who found the first gene for epilepsy ever for the world in 1995. And that really was the start of a fantastic chapter in understanding the genetic basis of epilepsy and going from one gene back in 95, and now probably about 400 genes implicated in the epilepsies. So Ingrid, how did you then go from recognising that genes were associated with epilepsy to looking at SCN2A? Well, that was really uh, an exciting discovery. We had uh, a couple of families who had a familial epilepsy, which was really mild. It began in either the newborn period or anywhere up to the age of six months. And this had been described in one large family as benign familial neonatal infantile seizures. Neonatal means newborn. What happened was we then started studying two of these families and with our gene-finding scientists, we went on to discover SCN2A as the cause of this very mild epilepsy. And these people grew out of the epilepsy um, and they were completely normal. It was quite frightening when it first started in the, in the newborn or baby or the infant, but then the grandmas knew the story. They knew, don't worry, the baby's having the seizures, but they'll be just fine and they'll be normal. So the families understood these were mild disorders and it was really through old-fashioned genetic techniques such as genetic linkage analysis and then mapping the locus of where the gene lay in the through the affected members of the family that we then discovered SCN2A and showed that it caused these mild epilepsies with a very good prognosis. We know now that SCN2A is associated with autism and uh, developmental epilepsies and intellectual disability, when did that start to come on the radar that maybe there's a broader clinical phenotype? Well, I think with most of the epilepsy genes, the more 
that we discover gene mutations, the more we understand that there is a much broader spectrum than we ever recognised to start with. It's an interesting uh, journey, actually, because you identify a group of children perhaps with the same presentation of seizures and intellectual problems and maybe cerebral palsy, and then you suddenly realise there's a pattern and then you say, well, this is, I'm describing this new epilepsy syndrome. And then when you've got all the, a number of patients with the same disease, nowadays with the new gene-finding techniques, you can actually discover they may have the same gene. So the poster child for that is Dravet syndrome, which uh, is due to another sodium channel gene, SCM1A, and that has a very distinctive pattern of presentation. And I find that 90% of the patients I diagnose with Dravet syndrome, I will find a mutation of one gene, SCM1A, now, SCN2A is much, much different to that, really. Even though it's related, it's also a sodium channel subunit. It presents with a whole spectrum of presentations, which makes it in some ways much harder to pick who might be SCN2A. Now, there are some groups that we know are more likely to have an SCN2A mutation, but because the spectrum is so broad, you can't pick that nearly as well. And you wrote a case series that got published in 2015, teasing out some of the clinical features of SCN2A. How's that then evolved now you understand sort of different gene variants better? So what happened was we started to find more patients with SCN2A pathogenic variants. That's a new term for mutation. And we realised that there was really a spectrum of severe developmental and epileptic encephalopathies associated with SCN2A. So we'd done that original work back in 2002 and understood the very mild epilepsies associated with SCN2A. But suddenly here we had 10 patients with severe presentations associated with SCN2A. And before our paper, there had been a smattering of single cases or just two or three, a few cases in the literature, but not really a good handle on what SCN2A could look like. So uh, together with my PhD student at the time, Catherine Howe, we put together a series of 10 patients that we had found. Most were Australian. I don't think they all were from memory. We started to delineate the spectrum of SCN2A encephalopathies. Encephalopathy meaning a, a disorder of the brain and really being used for some more, more severe disorders. So those associated with intellectual disability and uh, severe epilepsy. And it was fascinating with those 10 children, we started to map out the spectrum. But we really were only just the beginning of that story. That has evolved hugely from there. And there's a very important German paper, really pan-European, it's not just German, but with a German lead author, Dr. Wolf, that illustrates the spectrum of SCN2As is even broader again. So we realised it's a disease or SCN2A mutations produce very different uh, epilepsy syndromes and that's important to understand because it affects how we manage uh, patients with SCN2A encephalopathy. Can you tell us a bit about the different spectrums of SCN2A presentations? So SCN2A encephalopathy presents with many different epilepsy syndromes, which has panned out to be really interesting. So they're a group that begin under three months of age, and in particular Otahara syndrome. Uh, and SCN2A accounts for a fair number of patients with Otahara syndrome. 
The other place that we found that SCA2A was important in our paper was that it accounts for quite a few patients presenting with epilepsy of infancy with migrating focal seizures. Both of these are rare syndromes, but I guess the early onset is what makes you think SCN2A. So if a child or a baby begins in the first week of life, you think SCN2A. If they begin in the first few three months of life, we think SCN2A. And we have a large paper currently under review looking at the genetic landscape of epilepsy of infancy with migrating focal seizures. 7% of patients with that syndrome STN2A. So it gives us a bit of a handle of if you have a baby presenting with that very severe syndrome, then they have a 7% chance of being SCN2A. The spectrum of SCN2A encephalopathy seems to break into an early onset group, which begin under three months of age, and a late onset group of encephalopathies that begin after three months of age, and in fact can even begin into middle childhood uh, with syndromes such as Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. It's fairly rare, but it can be caused by SCN2A and myoclonic atonic epilepsy. The important point, though, is that those beginning under three months of age seem to be caused by pathogenic variants that cause a gain of sodium channel function. And those beginning after three months of age are caused by a loss of sodium channel function. The biggest group really is West syndrome, which typically begins around six months of age. So it seems that three-month mark is a real point of differentiation between gain of channel function disorders and loss of channel function disorders. You see, some of the terminology, can I just tease you out about that? So you're using terms like Lennox-Gastow, Odahara, West's, and then you're using genes. Can you just talk through that? Because that's a bit confusing for some people if they might be given a diagnosis of Lennox-Gastow and then told they've got a particular gene. How do those two sort of parallel nomenclature systems work? That's such an important question. Thank you for asking that. I think one is about how we classify a child's disorder based on their epilepsy, their EEG, and a host of other features, including MRI, developmental course, were they normal and became abnormal with loss of skills, or were they never normal when they had very slow development, did they have autism, a whole lot of other features. So that makes up an epilepsy syndrome diagnosis. It's really important to understand that as well as the cause. So SCN2A encephalopathy is talking about the cause, and that is about an abnormality of the gene encoding SCN2A, which makes the alpha-2 subunit of the sodium channel. Now, for my patients, they need to know both. I need to know which epilepsy syndrome they fit into and which what is their cause. And if you know just half of that, You can't target or tailor your management nearly as well. So you need to know both aspects, cause and also epilepsy syndrome. So how do we take this to the next step? Well, the next step is really complex and needs a hugely different skill set to those to the clinician scientists like me. What it needs is basic scientists, physiologists, who can really understand what's going wrong at the cellular level. And then they can explore that both in animal models and also in cells. So Dr. Geza Barecki, working with Professor Stephen Petru from the Flory, 
took this the next step recently in a PNAS paper, and they looked at two different mutations and tried to understand what the different gain of function mutation versus the loss of function mutation did. So they looked at a mutation called R1882Q, and I say R. 1882Q, uh, which we discovered first in one of my uh, little patients who had an Otohara syndrome picture, and sadly, very sadly, she died at 21 months of age. And they looked at that mutation and compared that early onset mutation, so we thought that was gain of function, with a mutation that is associated with West syndrome or epileptic spasms that begin in infancy and it's also been found in several children called R853Q. And they compared that again with the mild form that we found back in 2002, which is the benign familial neonatal infantile seizures and the gene uh, and the mutation for that. And they compared all three of them with wild type, which refers to the normal variant that most of us have. And they showed beautifully the loss of function and gain of function according to the different mutation. And this is actually the paradigm we need to then find a new treatment and to see if the treatment works. Because one of the greatest fears as a clinician is that you might give a treatment that could make a child worse. So you can imagine if you gave a sodium channel blocker uh, to a child whose sodium channel has a loss of function mutation and isn't working, you could actually make it, it could be very dangerous. You could even put the child at risk of dying. So you really need to understand the syndrome, what that mutation does, is it gain or is it loss of function, and then the treatment. And these uh, basic science or laboratory science experiments are critical to teasing this out. So Ingrid, you talked about the differences between gain and loss of function of the sodium channel and SCN2A. How will families find out whether their child is a gain of function or loss of function? Well, I think this is incredibly important but also difficult. And it's difficult because to do these studies might take a physiologist in the laboratory six months or a year, so it's not a quick thing. One of the issues is there are recurrent variants, which means that the same variant occurs by chance in many children around the world. Now, is it really by chance? We don't know that. There may be some predisposition in the gene to that mutation. But if it's a recurrent variant and that variant's already had physiology studies performed, the answer may already be well-known and published and accessible so that you know whether it would be safe. The second thing, though, is has that variant been tested for a different type of, of the drugs. And if that variant has been tested against, say, dilantin, phenytoin or carbamazepine, tegretol, you may already know if it looks like the response is good and mm. maybe something you trial in your child. Taking it to the next level, though, which I think is where we're already or also headed, is about gene therapy and will this be the right one for gene therapy or not? And I think that's going to take a lot more work for us to know. Clearly, the mouse model that Steve Petrie has developed and the testing in that mouse model will answer for that specific variant, but it doesn't mean that you can then apply it across to all gain of function and loss of function. I suspect we might be able to, but I think we need a lot more information to be sure. Moving forward, as potential treatments are developed, what's the role of a natural history study? 
I think the natural history study is absolutely essential if we're going to get new gene therapy trials to the patient. And the best example of that really comes from Batten's disease or a CLN2 disease it's called, where they developed a gene therapy. It was actually a gene therapy. It was a replacement for the missing enzyme that gets placed via a cannula into a child's brain every two weeks. It's a big deal, this treatment. And the reason it got across the FDA and in Australia as well is because they had natural history data showing that children with that disease died in a matter of years and this new therapy completely changed the trajectory of the disease. Now we have to be ready for that, poised for these trials so that we can show in the shortest possible time that they make a huge difference to changing our children's lives so that hopefully they are normal and the epilepsy goes away. That's what we're aiming for. And the idea of a natural history study is to have very good, robust data over many years, watching the natural history of this disease and mapping it out in terms of seizures, when are they bad, when do they get better, when do they change types of seizures. In terms of development, was it normal? If it was abnormal, how slow was it? Did it get slower when the epilepsy took off? Where did they end up? In terms of autism, when did the features show? In terms of cerebral palsy, when did that become apparent? And when you have all that data, then when you have a new therapy and ideally a gene therapy, you can say, well, this child isn't following the natural history of their disease. And this very expensive, usually new treatment is transformative. And that's what gets you across the line in terms of uh, getting the government to fund a treatment and to, to save a child's life. So given the importance of a natural history study in moving treatments forward and being able to justify the cost and risks and understand them better, how would you map out a natural history study? Well, I think it's really important to be all-inclusive and try and work with everybody to get a full picture of a spectrum of a genetic epilepsy, be that SCN2 encephalopathy or any of the severe epilepsies. And I think to do this really well, given that often the numbers of any of these patients with a disorder are relatively small in one country, one should work together with a global perspective. And just to reflect on my career, I've got so many collaborations with clinicians in more than 30 countries. And it's been a real joy because you then work together to help people all around the world and you make friendships around the world. And you also get to think together and find new ideas or new treatments or new approaches. So global collaboration is really important. We're very fortunate in Australia to have such a supportive patient family community and a network of clinicians that really want to work together because our aim is to improve outcomes for the children and adults we look after. But I also think there are people in other parts of the world that may be isolated and it means that they can then connect with us at a research and a clinical level. And to be honest, I get emails often like, I've just got a new patient with an SCN2A encephalopathy, what advice would you give? And I think it's fantastic that we should all work together and create a, a global network. Great. Thank you very much, Ingrid. What a great interview. That's given us such a great background of where the research in SCN2A started from and where it's going to in the future. 
Keep up to date with the latest updates by subscribing to this podcast. Or get regular updates on SEN2A through SEN2A Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SEN2A Australia. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.